song. United takes his time. About to check outside the game. You know what I'm talking about. Just let me know if you wanna go to that home out on the range. They got a lot of nice girls. Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. It's a different format today. Uh, my friend Justin, who has written for the magazine in the past and has been on the pod before, is back and we're going to review the Von Erichs movie, The Iron Claw. We went and saw it today as we're posting it on Boxing Day, St. Stephen's Day for you folks in Ireland. And we recorded our immediate thoughts right after we saw the movie as we were sitting in the car after the way home. So the audio is not as great as it normally is. And, you know, there might be some hiccups, so there wasn't uh, a whole lot of editing and stuff going on. This is pretty much like the raw feed with some little snipping here and there. So we're going to discuss the movie. Full-blown spoilers warning we're going to talk about the plot you know the plot it's a docudrama you know most of the history but we're going to talk about how it is as an actual movie and then we're going to talk about the wrestling stuff we're going to nitpick the history we're going to talk about the performances we're going to talk about who was good uh which wrestlers were best portrayed were not so great portrayed which portrayal which is being memed all over the internet is not as bad as people would have you believe we're going to talk about the acting, who we thought was really good. Everybody was pretty much okay, but some people were really good. You know, and then some various things. There's also a lot of wrestling talk, wrestling history, wrestling booking, what if, things like that. There's It's a long meandering conversation uh, about the movie and about wrestling, old wrestling, some modern stuff about booking and crowd attendance and things like that. And then at the very end, we're going to tease for an upcoming podcast that we're going to do that is also a biopic, but it was not nearly as good as the one that we just saw. So again, the audio is not as best as it could be, so apologize for that. And thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we get to the wrestling stuff, how would you rate this as a movie? Uh, like, I don't know, using the letterboxed five-star scale, I would say three out of five. I was going to say, I would say B. Yeah. Maybe. B, B minus. Yeah, I was going to say it's not, it's definitely not great. It's certainly not better than Godzilla. No. Well, and if, if comparing, comparing to the most recent thing I saw. I mean, if we're comparing, if we're just comparing it to sort of wrestling fighter type movies, it's you know an order of magnitude lesser than Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler, which I think, which also ties 
ties into what I think about the movie, which is like my my main critique of it is conceptual. I think they would have been better off making a movie that was deliberately fictional but loosely based on the Von Erichs rather than being shoehorned into here are the Von Erich brothers, here's how each one of them has to die, blah 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 blah. Here's all the names that we recognize and check off all those boxes. That's a critique that I think I for me anyway that's common to like biopics and historical films anyway. Well, I mean, we could certainly get into that probably later. Yeah. But I mean, I certainly I mean, I knew most everybody who was and wasn't in the film, but I was certainly watching it going Okay, there's Brody, there's Gino, there's no Chris Adams, there's no Gary Hart, there's probably a couple, no Brian Adias. May or may not be the Sheik, we're not, we weren't sure about that. Yeah, we were, we were trying to debate whether Chavo Guerrero in the beginning is supposed to be Ed Farhat or Kazavo, but I think he's supposed to be Ed Farhat, even though it apparently had Skandar Akbar as his manager. But again, that's, I would call that a nitpick. Oh, yeah, 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 that kind of stuff doesn't bother me. Like, even like... We were talking beforehand. We were talking about how it was already trending within like wrestling, you know, media, you know, social media, as it were. People making fun of like the Ric Flair that's in there. I like, you know, and you know, obviously, should go without if people don't know. I mean, you can tell them I'm the biggest Ric Flair mark in the whole wide world. I was say, I was say, your social media does have Ric Flair's name in it, so, <laughs> right, right. and and you once dressed up as, you once wore a Ric Flair robe for a high school debate. A college debate. College debate, yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay. Well, right, but, and I mean, I love Flair, I yield to no one in my fandom of Flair, but like, I didn't really have a big problem with the guy doing Flair. Um, you know, again, it falls into the whole thing of, uh, we're hidebound by the fidelity of like the impersonations of these people to like what the actual reality is. Whereas if you just let it stand on its own merits, it's fine. Right? Well, it's funny because when you compare it, people seem to be generally praising the guy who played Harley Race. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm thinking this guy does a really good Harley Race, but. Man, he's got a big gut. Even well, Harley did too. I know, but time. but he looked like a fat guy well, as opposed to Harley Race. Well, before, but he was good. He was good as Harley well, Race. When we were having lunch before we saw this movie, we were talking about as you go further back in time in the history of wrestling, a greater and greater proportion of the wrestlers had what we would now call kind of extreme dad bods with very little definition. But those guys were also kind of like shit-kicking, ass-kicking you know, guys that you would not want to like fuck with. And Harley Race was like sort of the epitome of that with his gut and whatever. But he looks like he could take a punch and he could dish it out. And so did, I mean, so did the real Fritz. Yes. Fritz looked like that too. And, yeah. and we may say this for later, but... The guy playing Fritz was really good and really channeled Fritz. He's one of the better... Holt McCallahan. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's... Like, he's one of the better character actors of recent vintage. He's been a... He's a classic, like, that guy. He's been in a bunch of things, and he's always good, but you don't remember his name exactly. Um, kind of like a J.T. Walsh, you know, of this generation. But, um, yeah, I, like... Yeah, I think they did a good job in the very beginning of the movie when they had, like, that black-and-white intro with Fritz. I thought that was actually pretty well done. Um, but, yeah, like... Uh, and we said that one of the first things I said after the movie was over is 
as bad as Fritz is portrayed in this movie, I think he got off light knowing what we really know about the well, real Fritz von Erich. Well, well, something else that we talked about, too, before we saw the movie was, as a class of people, wrestling promoters throughout history are mostly fairly disreputable types, <laughs> I would say. I would say even, even the best promoters and... I mean, Sam Mushnick's probably like the, the right. top of the even, standard. Even shout out, shout out to our friend Bo James, who may be on the podcast soon. As you know, as someone in the business and a promoter himself, he probably will certainly agree that wrestling promoters, on the whole, are not uh, are not sa- are not saints. <laughs> even even yeah, even Sam Mushnick and Don Owen and uh, whoever in Baba, yeah, you know. Admittedly, you know, Fritz and, you know, Anoki are probably, you know, closer to the other end and, uh... The self-interest spectrum, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, there's a spectrum, but, yeah, Fritz is definitely on the bad guy scale of wrestling promoters, and I think it could have been, this could have been much, much worse portrayal of Fritz, and it wasn't a great... We did not, we did not see the fake heart attack angle, Yeah, luckily... We also didn't, um, I, you know, they condensed a lot of stuff into a pretty short period of time, and which you know I guess is partly necessary because of you know the format, the film's two hour film. But I really thought going into it that, and I'm glad they didn't do this too much. But I thought they were going to like tease the whole like could Carrie have you know been the next Hulk Hogan and. Blah, 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 blah. And, like, that was... I mean, people who know the history of wrestling know that was, like, never in the cards. And that's, you know... Well, it, it's interesting, too, that they kind of... And especially when the... Um, when Lily James gets introduced as Kevin's future wife, like, they sort of skirt around the whole kayfabe thing. Yeah. But it really seems like... They kind of treated matches like they, shoots. They picked, they picked and choose. They they picked and chose when and how they were exposing the business. Right? Yeah, you're right. Because on the one hand, we get a scene where it's like uh, David and Kevin before their tag match with uh, Bruiser Brody and uh, Gino, and they're like laying out the whole mat. We see them laying out the match before the thing. And then, but like in none of these matches that they show in the movie, we don't ever see the referee or hear the referee say or do any. Like, I mean, the referee is so crucial in how wrestling matches play out, communicating with the workers. Blah, you know, this is how the match is going to go. Now it's time to do this, whatever. Or the guys talking to each other, even. Well, the only time you really had them talking to each other. Was Harley Race throws Kevin to the floor and he takes a back bump on the concrete. Yeah, and he says Where you're you go- you're going for a ride, kid. Yeah, but then Kevin also says later that he wasn't expecting it. Well, but Har- but like what? Like I bought all that just because like okay, Harley saying that in the ring. May- yeah, is may- what he was is ex- what he would say exactly, but. but- it's great because you could see that's the kind of double thing. Like, oh, you're the up and comer, and you think you can hang with the NWA champ? Well, guess what, pal? Which is funny because that echoes the story about how uh, 
Magnum was getting too big for his britches, and Dusty brought Harley in, and <laughs> Harley Harley did a number on Magnum on a house show that the front row section D guys like famously documented. <laughs> a little reality check, a little humility check. Yeah, something like. But yeah, so like the thing where Kevin finally gets a shot at with Flair, and Kevin gets disqualified because he won't break the claw when he's in the ropes. Yeah, which. Certainly, apparently wasn't the finish. Yeah, I don't even it, remember the finish of that match. Well, I mean, it's weird. Well, again, this is a the weird history thing because he's wrestling Flair in that match, but Flair has Big Goldie on. Yeah, which didn't exist yet, did it? Well, it's weird because I'd have to look. It was 86 at some point. Well, the, the, the Big Goldie's introduced in 86. I guess the question is, is it? Is it eighty? I think it may be the beginning of eighty-seven when Fritz breaks away from the NWA. Okay. So I guess it's theoretically possible, although it may also be. You know, again, there's a lot of fudging with history that isn't really crucial to the movie. It's right. just it's a pet peeve that people like us and people listening to this will have, and to be like, why did David die before they? Why did why did David die when he did? Why did they have Kerry have his motorcycle accident apparently the night after he won the title? Exactly. And so and, like six years later or and whatever Mike, it was. And Mike hadn't started wrestling yet, even though Mike is in was wrestled on the Paradia Champion show with yeah. Fritz and yeah. Kevin. Although the nice touch is Kevin in that scene with Ke- with Kerry is wearing like the mesh shirt and the white pants that Kevin wore in that match the yeah. day that Kerry won. So th- there's lots of little details they got right, and then there's weird history that they fudged well, it, for the narrative of the movie, which is fine for the narrative of the movie. Sure, sure. Again, you know, I made sure to read at the very end of the movie, it, there's a very long docudrama-style disclaimer about people, events, characters have been fiddled with for the sake of dramatization. So it's kind of... I mean, yeah. We all knew that anyway, but it's like they specifically put it right there at the end where it says, we know this isn't, this isn't history. If you want history, watch any of the Von Erich documentaries. Well, well, and also, like, going back to the whole very selective about exposing the business kind of thing. Because on the one hand, they're not... It doesn't seem like they're trying to keep secret the fact that you know, pro wrestling is predetermined, blah, blah, blah. There's even a conversation about it in the movie. It, and yet, like, even in the behind the scenes, like, the private conversations in the Von Erich household, it's almost treated like a shoot. Like, you and again, you and I were talking about this before the movie. Like, I mean, the reason that Kerry became the NWA champ is because Fritz paid for it. Like, he paid the NWA for a title run for Kerry. It wasn't like there's magical, you know, legitimate competition standings and he got all the way up the ladder and now it was his time it's like no I mean again that's one of the things in the film that's a gray area because he talks about the NWA is finally giving David or Kevin a shot at the title Yeah, which it isn't just like you know the NWA champion comes to Dallas like every month or like four times a year anyway. Right, exactly. And Fritz is the one deciding who gets the title shots exactly. in his territory. You, you know, Sam Mushnick may control the finishes or Jim Barnett at that point. But it's like, 
you know, if Flair comes to Dallas for a week, Fritz says, okay, he wrestles David one night, yeah. Carrie one night, Kevin one night, and then maybe for Variety, he wrestles Terry Gordy one and night. And in exchange, Flair's getting like half the, you know. And he's getting the, the champion's 10%. Exactly. And it's just funny. There's also, this is a scene that we, we joked about this when we were talking about promoter, about wrestling being a cash business. Because there's at least two scenes in this movie. Oh, yeah. Where, where Fritz is in his, it, again, his immaculately recreated from history <laughs> office, including the thing where you have to go up the stairs in the sportatorium to, to get to the office, of Fritz there counting out the money with, apparently in the movie, Bill Mercer is his right-hand man, not Gary Hart or Ken Mantell or anybody else. Again, yeah. you, know, you got a... Concession to dramatic necessity. Right, there's no need yeah. for Gary Hart in this movie because... Like none of the Gary Hart stuff is sort of relevant because it's basically, you know, that's them versus the title and them versus the Freebirds. Yeah, you know, I mean, you don't need Gary Hart. You didn't, you know, there's no gang Kabuki. There's brief Gino. There's brief Brody. There's no Chris Adams, like I said before. Right. So again, you don't need Chris Adams in this movie. Yeah. So which is fine, but. Uh, yeah, I love the like the payoff. Again, the the fudge thing of, you know, apparently world class got on ESPN in 1979, <laughs> I, right when ESPN was invented. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it was a little uh, head scratching kind of there. But and the, you know, they already had the famous 1982 era graphics already, right. like the famous world class camera. You know, it's funny they do briefly allude to this. The whole. How Mike really didn't want to... Like, Mike was more interested in outside wrestling things, including the television production. There's a scene at the dinner table where um, Mike is talking about these new camera angles they're using on the TV show, and Fritz is like, no one cares about that. We're talking about the matches. And it's like, it's obviously you know, Mike would have been better off like being Joel Watt, the Joel Watts of world class. Yeah. Rather than... <clears throat> The Eric, you know, rather than the Eric Watts. Well, yeah, rather than the you know, and again, there's no well because there's no Chris. Chris would have been the Eric Watts of the Von right, Eric of family, course, of course. But um, yeah, and you know, you kind of to me, it, I mean, this is they all pretty much look good, but it's like you know, you know, Mike is destined to be like the the black sheep of this family because. They did not give him the world's greatest haircut. No. They gave him the haircut that says, I'm not an athlete. I'm kind of the, the runt of the litter. This, this movie could, in my head, I was, uh, this movie could have been called Chekhov's Wrestling Family. We have Chekhov's uh, gun cabinet. We've got Chekhov's haircut. We've got, we've got uh, you know, Chekhov's drug habit, Chekhov's motorcycle. I mean, all these things are going to go off. By Act Three of the movie. <laughs> well, what's funny is as soon as we saw Fritz's gun cabinet in the very beginning of the movie, we like snickered to each other. Little did we know we would get to see later in the movie of Carrie actually introducing Chekhov's gun well, to Fritz as a Christmas present—the gun that he's going to well, use to kill himself. When the, when the camera lingers t a little bit too much on the gun cabinet, it's like, okay, we get it, you know. Well, that's the thing. It's like, you know, the movie starts, it's like they show the Von Erke house. It's like, what's the first thing, two things you see? The gun cabinet and the crucifix hanging on the wall. <laughs> yep. And we haven't mentioned so far, and, you know, I have my 
my uh, long-standing love for Mara Tierney. But she was also really good in this. She was not to not to like give her short shrift. I mean, she was a little. They didn't give her much to do in the movie except, well, you know, she was a shrew. She was like. Not the best mom to her kids until the very end. She stands up for herself by painting or whatever, and not fixing for its dinner. Yeah, she, which yeah, this is supposed. I you know I'm sure there'll people who'd be like, see, they'll be talking about this in feminist textbooks or whatever. And it's like, well, they could have done a little, done a little bit more. With I her. did wonder because if I remember right, we're we're sitting in the car doing this, so we, we have not fact checked this, but I think eventually Fritz or Doris left Fritz and divorced him. I think. Yeah. So, I mean, I thought that's kind of where it was going. But again, this time compression is so weird. Yeah. That it looks like that scene with her painting at the end is right after Fritz came in from finding Carrie. Because he's wearing the same outfit, including having his gloves on. So, I assume that's meant to be right after that happened. I didn't read it that way. I thought we were supposed to figure that time had passed... But, and but, like, but Fritz, they showed him wearing that when he's doing outdoor stuff, kind of. I guess the other problem too is, is you're wearing, if you're wearing like a flannel shirt, if you're not paying close attention, one flannel shirt looks like another. All right, and he had the glo- he's always doing like ranch stuff with his gloves on and his cowboy hat and stuff. So I did like, uh, I mean, he may have had multiple cowboy hats. But for him to like be wearing the white hat the entire movie and then put the black cowboy hat on for the funeral, yeah, I was like, this this is a little. It it may be historically accurate, but I'm like, that's a little much. <laughs> but that was a great scene when when they're going to Mike's funeral, and Doris says, "I can't wear the same black dress that I wore to David's funeral." Like. Everyone will know I'm wearing the same black dress to this funeral, which is kind yeah. of like, and this is only the second funeral. Yeah, and that, like there's other stuff that was kind of like omitted from the movie that I think might have enhanced it a little bit. Like they really didn't touch on just how significant a figure with as much influence as he had that Fritz was in that area. Well, I mean, you can't, yeah. And you can also, like when you're talking about the way they portrayed the business, like we can't mention it, you know, there are parts, I think, during this era when Fritz was the NWA vice president. Yeah. Which would sort of ruin the, I mean, he's there's a lot of us against the world. Like, He's got a big chip on his shoulder that the NWA never made him world champion. Yeah. Which is another reason he's, you know, Earl Woodsing his family. Right, right. So it's the kind of thing where it's like, well, one, Fritz, you were in an era where, you know, they weren't going to make a gimmick Nazi heel the world champion. Exactly. Well, it's kind of like, it's like uh, when you read that biography, the Brian Solomon's biography of the Sheik, and... Well, you understand why the Sheik didn't get to be the NWA champ, right? That doesn't mean the Sheik wasn't, like, an amazing draw and a great heel and all that kind of stuff. But, like, he's not maybe not the right guy. And and as we talked about when Brian was on the pod, it's like the Sheik really had... The Sheik could wrestle if he had to. I mean, yes. he, I mean he was like... Well, I always get this wrong, but he was like army wrestling champion yeah. in like 1945. Well, yeah, when he was in Europe. That's, yeah, that's one of the interesting things I learned in that book, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, like yeah, yeah, you're not gonna make a gimmick Nazi, you know, uh, you know. It's like you're not gonna make, uh, you know, uh, Professor Fuji or somebody like that or whatever. Like those kind of gimmick. I don't know. Who's the only one? Like Iron Sheik is he the only foreign menace, big time world heavyweight champ? I have to. Th- well, and he was just a transition. Yeah. I'd have to think about... I guess it also just depends on, like... I'd have to look up... Oh, wait. Ivan Koloff. Yeah, Ivan Koloff. Ivan Koloff beat Bruno. That's right. Ivan Koloff beat Bruno. So... So, is there anybody besides him? I get... Well, I guess it sort of would depend on your definition of foreign match. Because I don't... I I assume when Jumbo Ceruto won... I don't care. He's not... He's foreign, but not. And Otto Wants wasn't really... I don't think of... No, because I think he was a baby face. I, I think of foreign menace as like some mustache twirling foreign heels. Right, yeah. right. Somebody who comes to prominence and is getting pushed at a time when their their fake or pseudo fake identity represents something who's like a current antagonist of the United States. I get. I'd have to look to or see relatively recent past antagonist. I guess. I don't know if. I think Mad Dog Vashon may have won the AWA title, but I don't know if being like an evil Canadian lumberjack oh, how f- fits that definition. How about um, Slaughter? Yeah, but see, I would say once we get to like the modern era, like those things don't count. Like, but I, but like they were still doing the four minutes. Oh yeah, he angle. Was, yeah, I mean the fact that he. You know, go back and listen to our pod talking about the that the Iraqi sheik. But I mean, <laughs> Slaughter wore uh, sheik boots given to him by Saddam Hussein <laughs> in a box that was wrapped in USA Today newspaper. I mean, like one of my favorite things of all time. I like. I think you still could do the four minutes thing, but I think attitudes have changed such that the political incorrectness or what or or the out, like, you remember when Stephanie did, did the interview about 9-11, right? Like, imagine doing an angle where, like, the evil four minutes, it was, like, Al-Qaeda, and they came out with box cutters or something. Well, like, I mean, I mean, if they had put the world title on Muhammad Hussein, or, uh, you know, when when they did Muhammad Hassan. Oh, right, right. Who did it, you know, you remember the reason that he got banned forever from television on Fox was they did an angle where they piano wired the Undertaker? Oh right, right, right. The week of the London bombings. Right. That's that got him the permanent ban from Fox. <laughs> so yeah. So yeah, it would have been like if. Well, I guess the question would be. I think we. I think most people agree that at some point in the future, Gunther should be world champion. Absolutely. But. It. He's but he he's almost like an anachronism in so many ways. But is he G- gimmick is an anachronism, and the fact that he looks like he kick kick someone's ass in an era where so many wrestlers look like my grandmother could beat them arm wrestling. Gunther looks like a man's man that you don't want to fuck with, and who when he when he smacks people with his open hand, it looks like it could break your fucking breastbone. I mean, so yeah. I would assume he's going to be the champ at some point. If but smart. I guess, I guess it's sort of. I mean, he's almost sort of like an an abstract foreign heel. 
where they kind of have the trappings of the foreign heel, but they don't really. What's I right? mean, they're they're kind of like whitewashed. He's he's a vestigial, right? He's got sort of the. Uh, it's more like World War One German menace, and not so much Nazi. Although events had his way, I'm sure, like be changing him from Walter to Gunther. Well, do you remember? Do you remember the controversy over that? Yes, I do. Yeah, that's why. Like, <laughs> I mean, for people who don't remember, even though this is a couple years ago, instead of just being Gunther, he was going to be Gunther von Stark, which is the name was the name of a U-boat captain during World War II. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, that sounds like a generic German name. It's like somebody did not do their IP due diligence on that. Well, or one, I mean. Or just, didn't didn't care. Just spitballing. We know that Vince is good friends with someone who has bragged about having Mein Kampf on his nightstand. Who but, shall remain nameless. But those guys are kind <laughs> of... But yeah, it's the kind of thing where you kind of dress them in like Prussian colors as opposed to... Although... The most... And, and, the, and, and like his stooges. His stooges are probably more stereotypically Aryan, for lack of a better word... I, well, I think then Gunther really is. I, I think that how Gunther's presentation plays, it I, I'm guessing it it varies wildly based on like what the demographic of the audience is. I think for people over the age of like 45, they they see the Prussian slash German menace, maybe harkening back even to like World War II shit or whatever. I think people who are younger probably just see him as a badass. Right, or just well, as I a mean, stern I get, mean... Again, it's the kind of thing where, on any given appearance, how much... How, like, many, how many people under the age of 45 know what a Prussian is? Well, that's true. So, <laughs> But, I mean, like, if he's wearing the big coat... Yeah. Like, but, like, it's color-coded for people who know what it means, but, like, there's no... There's no symbolism on it. There's no insignia or anything like that. No, I mean, it's not like Gunther's logo has, like, the giant... Pr- like, he doesn't have a flag with a Prussian eagle on it. Right. He's not, And he's not doing the uh, the Pink Floyd wall movie thing with the, the stand-in insignia or anything. Or goose-stepping or... Exactly. I mean, they're not even... Like I said, they're not even wearing, like, the... Like, the sp- like wearing the spiked helmet as opposed to, like, the... The, like the World War II helmet, for all, lack of a better term. All someone like Gunther needs to do is look unpleasant and kind of mean and forbidding. And uh, that kind of gets the point across. Well, it's also the kind of thing where, you know, once we got to this thing now where it, it's he's almost like post-specific... Like he's a nationalist, modern... He's a generic foreigner. Yeah. Like he's kind of like... Like he's like Hans Gruber. Yeah. Where he's Germanic. You know what I mean? So we all like that's coded like Yeah. We were talking about this recently where it's the thing where they started running out of national like uh when we got to like the eighties and nineties and like political correctness started. Well also the cold the Cold War ended. And the Cold War ended yeah. where it's suddenly like I mean, the best example is, like, the Mighty Ducks where, like, Iceland are now, like, the stand-in for your evil foreigners. Exactly. Or, you know, I was talking re- somebody. I was talking recently with somebody about the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie. Yeah. 
And the fact that you couldn't use Fu Manchu. So they made they made the villain from Outer Mongolia because who cares about the box office in Outer Mongolia? Well, and this is also the problem that for the last 30 years that James Bond movies have had, right? Right. They relied on, like, there's no Cold War anymore. So now they have to come up with cockamamie, like, you know, James Bond's womb mate you know whose brother from another mother is actually the head of specter and all this kind of nonsense or or you just have generic billion you know it's like yeah you that's when you get christopher walking playing maxwell zorn well i mean or jonathan or jonathan price as great as jonathan price is if, if they're smart the next one of the next James Bond movies will be like an obvious Elon Musk stand in, right? He was born to be a Bond villain. I mean, you know, I've, well, it's, I, yes, but I mean, I'm one of the people who think Bond movies should be period movies and not, like, make your current Jason Bourne movies that deal with contemporary America, but like, I think like Bond movies should just be set in the 60s. Fair. That's fair. And that, you know, and and you can sort of, you know, change the casting as need be to make things more palatable for a 21st century audience than, you know, like you could set a movie in the 60s now, but you could still have a more feminist heroine than you would have had in the 19th, you know. Yeah. Like, you don't have the, like damsel in distress like you have in From Rush With Love, you know, you get a more sort of, yeah. like, you know, Michelle Yeoh in whichever Bond movie she was in. You know I mean? You don't need a damsel. You can have a marginally, almost equal, feminine sidekick love interest. Just so long as James Bond is an unstoppable killing machine. Shout out, Joe Murray. <laughs> but so apparently our, our short discussion has lasted longer than I thought. So we might actually not really need to do it. Is there anything we have not discussed here that we, we would say? Um, I'm trying to think. There was something I was holding so off this, on. So this may not be as long as we were originally planning, but we also don't need to record again later. Yeah, I just think, like, like, my biggest critique of this movie is conceptual. I think... Like, cause that, like I was talking before about how Sean Durkin, this director, the first movie that he made, which I always mix up the, the title of this movie, Mary, Mar, Marlene, Marcy, whatever. It's three female names that begin with M starring Elizabeth Olsen, where she like, uh, joins a cult. And I thought it was a great movie. I mean, really, really good and kind of creepy too. And so this movie, even though like technique wise there's really nothing to critique in this movie it's just that like because the decision has been made to adhere to this kind of like von Erichs in history template i think the, the 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 movie would have been better served just starting off like this is fiction we're going to take elements of the von Erichs and incorporate it into this and make it something more make it more like aronofsky's the wrestler and less like, okay, this is a biopic about the Von Erichs. I think that would have made for a better movie. Well, it's kind of like you look at the original wrestler, where Ed Asner's sort of Vern Because Vern produced that movie. 
Yeah. Where, like, that's a lot of thinly veiled stuff, but you can recognize that Ed Asner is supposed to be Vern Gagne. Yeah. And some of the other people in that movie, you know who they're supposed to be. Yeah. Even though they're fictionalized, and that movie does have a lot of wrestlers in it. Yeah. Like, including, like, the Texas Outlaws and people like that. Like, in, in, like, if you did that, I don't think you would have been getting as much, uh, there wouldn't be people dragging, like, the guy playing Ric Flair. Because you could have had him playing like some other character named, you know, Nature something. You know, I think I think I think wrestling fans, being wrestling fans, would still n- probably if it was fictionalized and we knew it was based on the Von Erich, people would still nitpick the history, sure, because they know what it's based on. Since it's like the actual characters, but, it gives people an easier opportunity to nitpick. I think if you look if you look across like the history of wrestling, right. One thing that comes up over and over again, even though it doesn't always play out the exact same way, you see the promoter of the territory who is also, like, at some point, a top performer or worker in that territory. And as they age and they have families and stuff, the nepotism starts to creep in. They start to push their kids. And some of the kids are talented, like some of the Von Erichs or, like, Jeff Jarrett or somebody like that. Some of the kids are like Eric Watts or, uh, you know, uh, the Sheik's kids. Or George George Corliss. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, so I think you could thematically, you could create a fictional, like, promotion or territory and have a family. And you could draw from all these different things that are sort of common threads throughout, like, the history of the business. And not be hidebound into the kind of like you know you have to have a, a guy with an amputated foot who shoots himself you know or whatever right you could kind of let it flow more organically than that but I mean it what this you know I didn't think Iron Claw was a bad movie no I, I think in, in sort of summation I think we would say it's worth seeing sure and if you're a wrestling fan you kind of gotta like put your nitpicks away and try and enjoy the movie and then sort of do like what we're doing is like you know you go out and like have dinner after the movie and you say the guy who played Terry Gordy was really good the The guy who played Flair isn't as bad as people are saying the intro to the movie was really well executed with Fritz in black and white and the uh, Tom Sawyer montage I think was really well done it really kind of got you into the, like, the spirit of the thing, right? It's like, it, you know, Tom Sawyer's, like, a naturally great sort of song to use in movies for that, like, in I Love You, Man, right? It's a different kind of montage, but, like, in this movie, it really gets you into it. It's like, all oh, right, the Von Erich brothers, they're wrestling together, they're beating the Freebirds, even though no cage, you know, that was sad, but... Again, yeah, we didn't, we didn't, we were sort of... Once they showed it was 1983, we're like, well, I guess we're not getting the cage door spot. But again, that's, that's okay. that would be like an Easter egg for wrestling fans that you don't really... I think a bigger Easter egg is that they showed Buddy Roberts wearing his headgear in the Freebird hair cream angle. Well, you, other than getting to see like the cage door spot. Well, the, the only thing that I would... Even though like in the abstract, it's okay that the cage door spot and that is not in there, but... Just from a historical perspective, couldn't you make the argument that, like, Von Erich's Freebirds, is that, like, the hottest feud of the 80s? Or one of the two or three hottest feuds of the entire decade? I would say... 
if especially if you're talking about before the expansion. Yeah. Oh, well, that's for sure. But like, even after the expansion, like, how many feuds were there in either? Uh, I mean, they I, were at that nuclear hot for like that limited period of time. Even. Well, I mean, I guess you could argue Midnight's in Rock and Roll, both in Mid South and Crockett, and then when you put yeah, them together, that's true. That's. But probably if you look at like every, you know, Lawler and Dundee. Yeah. But that's also a few that like last years and years and years. Yeah, the, so it's not like a white hot peak and then sort right. of fall off. Yeah, because Freebirds, Von Erichs, we're talking about like, what, 18 months or two years maybe? Yeah, like, the, we'll see. We'll see. The weird thing is, too, with that is you have like the big initial feud. And then they leave for a while, and then they come back and they feud again, and then they leave, and then they come back again. So if you're just talking about, yeah. you have the initial one. Yeah. Yeah, and then cause, and then you get the thing where, like, the you know, the Freebirds eventually kind of turn face. Yeah. When they're feuding with, you know, with well, Devastation, and they're kind of faces again well, when they come back and turn heel. And Well, and the story of, like, the death of world class is, like... Fritz trying to play the greatest hits over and over and over again to less and less effect. Like, because they kept running Texas Stadium, right? Once a year or however long. Well, it's like, I don't know if this is like a coronet saying or Dutch or somebody saying like that, where they used to say, you know, we have a match that needs a stadium. Yeah. And then eventually they had a stadium that needs a match. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because it doesn't take very long for them to go from, like, 40,000-odd in Texas Stadium for the match with Flair and carry, you know, to, like, maybe a third by the time that they're running Texas Stadium after they've left the NWA. Oh, yeah. When it's when it's Rick Rude versus Kerry or Kevin or Chris Adams, whoever. Yeah. It isn't that parade of champions. You know, once... Well, people have seen it already, and it's not as hot anymore. And No, and even, like, the second year wasn't as big. No. You know, and we'll... And we'll certainly see later this year that, you know, that you could put 80,000 people in Wembley Stadium the first time. Yep. But will you put 80,000 people in Wembley for a second time? Well, right. It's like if if, uh, Vince had tried to run the Pontiac Silverdome every month in 1987... He's not doing seventy eight thousand. Well, people, I mean, right? famously, I mean, famously, they ran Madison Square Garden like a couple of weeks before WrestleMania one. It did not have like the world's greatest house. Yeah. And again, WrestleMania one really wasn't about selling the house in that. No, right, of course. But yeah, I mean, if well, uh, I mean, if they had WrestleMania four in the Silverdome when they would, if they would have booked exactly the same way, and they would have had that world title tournament that they had in Trump Plaza and the Silver Dome, they probably wouldn't have sold it out. Yeah, of course. Because, you know, Hogan Andre, quote-unquote, the first time... <laughs> asterisk. Asterisk. Is, you know, a thing where... And again, being 1987, you know, there's lots of reasons why they chose the Silver Dome, because there's lots of places they could have run and sure. got... I mean, they picked that because, like, Detroit and Toronto were, like, huge for them because they had just drawn that huge crowd in Exhibition Stadium right. for the Orndorff-Hogan match. Plus, they put it in the, in the middle of the country, so they draw from, like, you know, because it's 1987, so people yeah. aren't flying in the way they do now. But, you know, if you have it in Detroit, you're drawing from, like, the entire Midwest. 
Well, even even today, right when they do the whole like two day WrestleMania thing, and uh, like was it was a year or two ago they did it in like SoFi Stadium out in LA, right? And it's like, all right, great, you're you're selling a crap load of tickets in this stadium, but like if they ran that stadium every month, you would quickly see diminishing, you know, returns, right? And and if WrestleMania wasn't an event, right. You know, that's entirely possible that if they're trying to sell two nights at WrestleMania... Like, this year, they're going to they're gonna do it in Philadelphia. Right, right. I mean, would they really sell out two nights in, like, the 60,000 or whatever Lincoln Field holds? You know, if we knew the card ahead of time? I mean, it's the thing. It's an event. Everybody... I mean, Wembley... Are they, are they having it at the link, or are they having it in Wells Fargo? No, I think it's... A, I mean, I think they're pretty much, like, stadium... Doing it, like, outside? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure they're like they've reached the point of only doing stadiums again. Okay. At least for like for, those for WrestleMania. Yeah. Um but you know, it's like if it you know, like they'll be sold out before we know who Reigns is fighting at WrestleMania, whether it's Cody or Punk or The Rock or right. Gunther. You know, I mean it's like we don't know and we'll probably have two main events, one on well, one night, one on the other. Well, one night will be a women. Well, one night they'll main event with the women because that's what you have to do in 2023. <laughs> Even if there's only like four that anybody wants to see. Well, and Charlotte certainly won't be back by then. So yeah, it's exactly, like who? Exactly. I mean, it's Rhea, Rhea and Becky and uh, yeah, it's, Rhea versus somebody. Yep. You know, and then the second night will be Roman versus somebody. But they'll be sold out. I mean, they'll they'll probably sell out the first day they put the tickets on sale. Yeah. Because I was trying to... We were at Christmas dinner yesterday, and with my um, with my mom's cousin, who's, you know, in her 70s or close to it, and just trying to explain, like, basic things about wrestling and how it used to work. Because we were talking about the Von Erich movie, to bring it all back. And... Uh, so we were trying, I was like trying to explain business stuff or whatever to her. And it was just like, you know, that it's now, it's now like a, it's, it's now like the Harlem Globetrotters or the circus. Like it comes to your town once or twice a year and you go and yeah. it doesn't like nowadays people do not know what the matches are going to be when they go to get house show tickets. Yeah. At least we're, we're talking about the WWF, other you know, other companies may apply. Yeah. But it's like, but certainly, you know, 90% of the people who bought tickets for Wembley didn't know any, you knew who was going to be on the card, but you didn't know what the matches were going to be. Right. More right. or less. So it's like, yeah, people are buying tickets for WrestleMania without knowing what the matches are because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because it's, it's a show. It's the event it, that's being sold, not the... Right. It's not like... Not the town. It's not like... In territory days, when you're running a town weekly and you need to constantly refresh your product and matches to draw your two or three thousand people, it's one of the things we were talking about while we were eating lunch. The whole, you know, wrestling is bigger now but less popular than in the territory days when it was smaller globally, nationally, but stronger regionally, where. We had so many more people actually going to shows and watching it on TV. You know, it, you, you know, added up all the local stations that carried syndicated. Right. That's the thing we were yeah. talking about. The thing where you know, at some point in the recent past, Cornet did something on his pod. And other people may have done it too. Where you like average what like 
the number of people that went to wrestling in like 1977 across the country because you've got 30 promotions running five towns a week and even if you only draw a thousand or two thousand people to those shows that's you know, 10,000 people a week for 52 weeks yeah. times 30 promotions. Well, if you're just looking at, like, Memphis territory, it's like Memphis and Louisville and all these other little towns that they run all the time. And then you got, like, the spot shows and the one-offs and, you know, it all adds up. And now it's like, what's well, all, I mean, it's like with anything else, like, it, you know, TV ratings and stuff, too. If fewer people are watching. But... It's like if fewer people are watching, but you still have a network that gives you $200 million or, you yeah. know, some number. Like, if you're getting $250 million a year for your TV, yeah, then, like, and and the network is happy with your ratings, then it's it a, doesn't really matter. It's a historically, uh, like, kind of abnormal context where right now all these networks value live, you know, sports programming over everything else. Because, like, the one thing that people are less likely to DVR, it's the thing that advertisers want to advertise on more because people have to put their eyeballs on it. So, you know, they're going to sort of, I feel like, artificially pay more for that stuff than they would have, like, 20 or 30 years ago. Well, certainly, like, if you have whatever ratings NASCAR get, Like, NASCAR just got a big contract. And NASCAR, I mean... Like, has NASCAR been, like, more dead ever than it... Like, when do you oh. ever... Oh, yeah, NASCAR's popularity is, like... And, and you know, we're realistically in sort of, like, the mid-Atlantic where, you know, NASCAR, at least when I was growing up, was still very, very popular sure. in, like, you know, even, like, rural mid-Atlantic states. But, like, you know... I couldn't well, even... Well, we had, we, had we had a Winston Cup track back when it was called the Winston Cup. Uh, not far from the high school that I went to, and they NASCAR used to run that track like twice a year for the Winston Cup. But then there was also drag races all the time, and like basically that one racetrack like supported the economy of like that whole county. And now that track isn't even like you know in operation anymore. So I mean, we are not all that too terribly far away from Dover Downs as we sit and record this. I mean, I couldn't tell you the last time I even remember, like, seeing, like... I mean, certainly even here, where we are, you know, like, a, like 10, 15 minutes away, maybe, yeah. from Dover. You know, like, it used to be the entire week you would see, like, welcome race fan signs up at, like, the restaurants and... All that kind of stuff. And, like, now, I could, like, I don't think I even knew, like, what weekend that race happened here. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just one of those things where you don't see it anymore. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, to wrap up, because we've been sitting in this car a lot longer than I thought, and I don't want to have to drive home in the dark. <laughs> but, uh, so, we, people should, as a movie, it's worth seeing. As a movie for wrestling fans, you know, sort of squint and don't get too hung up on the history. I think, generally speaking, everybody was good in the movie. Yeah. There are a couple of people who were really good. The guy playing Fritz was really good. Oh, yeah. Like, Mara Tierney was good for, like, the limited amount of stuff she had. Zac Efron was he pretty... Was, was, was good. Was good. Yeah. Lily James was good. Yeah, there were, the performances were all mostly pretty good. 
Um, you know, the, the haircuts were distracting because in their desire to exactly duplicate the Von Erich haircuts, they missed the fact that like the, the various hair, I mean, were they all wearing wigs or do you think that was their real hair? I would assume they're all wigs. They look, and they look like wigs to me. And so that was a little bit of a distraction, but that did you know, the performances were good despite that. But I think also, if you're Joe moviegoer, that them each having individually recognizable haircuts helps. It does. Like, it helps that David has the long blonde hair, Carrie has the brown curly hair, Mike has, like, yeah. the, un- the unfortunate hair, and... <laughs> it's funny that Kevin really doesn't have, like... That Kevin Von Erich care the way I remember it. It's funny. I joke at the it's very like be- page boy right at the very beginning of the movie when Kevin and David are little kids. That I thought they gave the kid who presumably was Kevin. They gave him more of the Kevin Von Erich haircut than Zac Efron had because I leaned over and I said <laughs> they gave him they gave the little kid like the Kevin cut because he kind of had the more modern like. Yeah. Yeah. Shaved on the sides with it like floppy on the top that Kevin kind of had. Yeah. I also noticed one of the things that they omitted because again you don't need it is we did not see like Kevin's near death experience in the ring when Tommy Rogers had to give him CPR. Right. Right. Like we didn't see that because one you didn't again you don't need it, but it's also I think they kind of showed how beat up and sort of weary Kevin was. We didn't need to see Kevin also had a near-death experience. Sure. Like, I think he had enough trauma dealing with all what happened to his brothers. Sure. And sort of the psychological scarring that he was having. We didn't need to see him, like, all of Kevin's concussion issues or, yeah, yeah, almost die in the ring. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so everybody was pretty much good. Some people were really good. Again, a lot of the... Cameo wrestlers were good. I think the Freebirds were good. Harley was good. Flair's not as bad as everybody's joking about. I think it's just because people people have to meme stuff now. Yep. And, again, people... Much like... Imagine if Dusty was in this. <laughs> and we had somebody... Like, like everybody does their Dusty impression. Well, right. I mean, when you're dealing with, like, a one-of-a-kind... Uh personality who can't be duplicated which is what makes Flair and Dusty and people like that so special of course somebody going on there and impersonating them is not going to be like what you remember or think of no and the guy doing Flair didn't sound like Flair but I thought he really he had good Flair cadence yes he had like the, he, the, he captured the he captured the vibe of Flair for sure and again you can't like I said I jokingly said what are they supposed to do have the guy lip sync the promo and then pay Flair <laughs> to do the promo. Like, it would have been worse to have Ric Flair's voice coming out of this guy. <laughs> Put a can of Woo energy drink in the fucking dressing room. Yes, give him... Yes, give... Yeah. Yeah, it's like, Kevin, Kevin, I'm coming to the Sportatorium with some Wooings. Wooings! <laughs> oh, Flair, we love you. But, uh, yeah, so definitely we're seeing... Um, again, guys squint on some parts. Again, you know, this certainly isn't ready to rumble nope. or, or anything like that. So, like, if you're a wrestling fan and you go with wrestling fan, 
wrestling non-fan friends or loved ones, like, this movie is not going to make you embarrassed to be a wrestling fan. For sure. That's you know, I mean, fair. if anything, it does give you sort of, like, it gives outsiders a glimpse into the world. And, you know, maybe they kind of understand it a little better. Does <laughs> The outsiders? It does. Of course, the one thing when you watch this movie, it, it, it does make you want to ask, hey, yo. how did... How did Kevin let his kids become wrestlers? <laughs> yes. I mean, nothing nothing against Ross and Marshall who, you know, may be fine wrestlers. I haven't seen them wrestle lately because I didn't see them wrestle recently on television. But it's the kind of thing where it's like, if you're Ross or Marshall or, or even Lacey, it's like, is this really the family business you want to go in knowing well, the baggage? But the other, I mean, maybe the other part of it is when they turn 18 and they want to do it, you can't stop them. No, I think so. you're better to be... Teach them how to be safe. Yeah, and you'd like to think that Kevin did not make the same mistakes that... I mean... Well, the, ju- judging by the 932 kids and grandkids we see in the picture at the end of the film, he's, you know, uh, he's fertile. If, if the well, else. I mean... Or and, vir- viral, I should I mean, say. it's not like these kids have been... I mean, you know, I'm sure they've wrestled locally. They work in MLW, and then they just recently were on TV. But, I mean, it's not like, you know, Kevin has pu- has tried to, you know, push them. It's not like, you know, he called Vince and said, you know, hey, Vince, in exchange for buying the world-class library, can you give these, you know... yeah hire these guys and put them in developmental and push them or whatever, you know, it's like they've had sort of like a nice, normal, slow career. And I mean, I don't know a lot about them, but I assume that may not be their day job given how often they work. Maybe we'll hear more about them after the movie or something. I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's like he's done some media, but I mean, like Kevin, I don't know, like what Ross or Marshall have done much media, but yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly you would think you'd give them a boost at it. Like they would start getting more bookings if they can. It's like, I know, you know, MLW has weird, the weird contract thing, but I mean, they, uh, you know, appeared on, on WBD television last week or whenever it was. So you know, they're out there and I guess people know who they are and I guess we'll see if they can convert it into anything. So that's it. This, this segment, we probably, there's, there will not be a part two or part three of this, I guess. So it'll be, uh, but I guess we can tease talking about, uh, how this is a biopic that we generally recommend. Yeah. Um, there's another recent biopic that came out that, uh, you were not the world's biggest fan of, and I can tease us for doing, a future pod where we talk about Ridley Scott's Napoleon. Yeah. Yeah. I would say we will, we will be back at some point in the future. I haven't actually seen it. I don't know if I'm actually going to, but, uh, uh, yeah, we may be back at some point in the future to talk about what my friend that I'm sitting with, who arguably was a Napoleon scholar and just the long litany of, uh, nitpicks he had with that movie and then we'll also talk about something that you may not be able to find, but is much better, and that's uh, Abel Gantz's silent classic Napoleon, which you can find if you look hard enough. But uh, one of the like most famous films in cinema history, probably sure. fair to say. Yeah, definitely. So fair. if you can find that, 
uh, watch it. Uh, don't watch Ridley Scott's Napoleon. Or well, you can hate watch it, maybe. Or hate watch it. Uh, I'm not a. I do. I do not encourage hate watching. I think it's. <laughs> I as I as I've said on many pods before. Um, there are too many things out there to watch in 2023, 2024, to waste time hate watching. <laughs> You know, it's like, it's one thing when we grew up in the 80s and we went to the video store and there wasn't a whole lot to watch, so we would get bad movies to make fun of MST style. It's like, there's there's too much out there to waste your time on things that you don't like. And be that uh, movies or wrestling, I, I encourage, uh, do not encourage hate watch wrestling or even hate listening to podcasts that hate watch wrestling as much as I love <laughs> some of them. So, uh... Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will talk to you next time. Peace out. You wore the family name with pride. Boldly you went forward. Did the things a lesser man might not have ever done. A tornado from the Texas plains You came and changed our lives Now you're gone With the Lone Star State in blazing On your battle tards proclaiming you A native son with strength and love and pride morning star that shines for one brief moment in eternity and all too soon God called you to die God knows.